2: Hey, BTB buddies, I wanted to let you know that I have a Patreon page now so that you can support the show. Check out patreon.com forward slash btbpc and check out the cool stuff you can get for as little as two bucks per month. You can also find the link in the show notes. Thanks, as always, for listening. As you know, I'm always looking for new podcasts. Not the famous podcasts made by famous people, but the independent podcasts made by unfamous people who are podcasting to inform and entertain you. I found a good one in the entertainment category. We all need some funny in our lives right now, and the Real Funny Stories podcast definitely brings it. College students hold a candlelight vigil for Taco Bell after it closes. Man wants to charge his girlfriend $24 a night when she sleeps over. Vegan Bride banishes meat eaters from her wedding. Woman makes $60,000 a year selling her dirty underwear online. Check out Brooke and Julie on the Real Funny Stories podcast, where they talk about the funniest news stories you probably missed. They scour the internet each week to find the most hilarious, strange, and outlandish stories. Join them every Monday and prepare to laugh. Any platform you use, they are on it. Search the Real Funny Stories podcast and prepare to laugh. I'm talking to Matt Brown today. How you doing, Matt?
0: I'm doing all right. How are you doing today, Scott?
2: Uh, so, Matt, you're a Chicago comic, and you started at a very young age. How, how young were you when you started?
0: So, when I started writing for Stage when I started writing, I was actually 16. Okay, and I started performing, and I moved to Chicago to do comedy at 18.
2: Okay, so the writing part let's let's talk about that. Were you writing like monologues, or were you were you writing actual jokes or bits, or what were you doing? It was,
0: it was very interesting for the first like for the first couple of years that I was writing, and then for the first about 9 months that I was actually doing stand up from about eight, ages 18 to 19 mm-hmm. I was obsessed with a good one liner uh-huh. I have always really liked older school comedy and more of that mom's maybe Joan Rivers Don Rickles sort of real to the point kind of kind of joke mm-hmm. and sort of people who think that you sort of get to the joke quickly think that it's a little old fashioned but I think it's a really important stage in development you have to go through because mm. to be able to make something that's long-winded interesting, you have to know how to be interesting for a little bit of time. Yeah. They make you do six minute sets for years before you get to do 15 and 20 for okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So um, so right, you mentioned,
0: one-liners, limitless one-liners. So you were just
2: writing, and just filling up notebooks.
0: I literally no, no 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 no. I was so organized about it. I had a Google Drive.
2: Oh, okay. Everything
0: organized. Yeah. I was such a type A nerd. And it's funny. I got more written when I was in high school because I lived in a small town. And I find being out of the city, I'm much more productive.
2: Uh-huh.
0: When I moved to this city, I had like 10 single space pages of just one-liners organized wow. by topic. And then I had two movies that I'd written just to have in the back pocket.
2: Uh-huh. Just <laughs> Holy cow. You know, it's funny. I have always, you know, since I started, I wrote all my stuff out longhand. And when the whole pandemic stuff started, and I was working from home, I was in front Mm -hmm. of my computer all the time. So it wasn't easy for me to go to my notebook and back to the computer to work and stuff like that so i yeah. just started a one note that i that i started adding to and making new notes on it and mm-hmm. now i've got that synced with my phone so i'm doing that versus uh the writing it out longhand now so i can i, can I just that.
0: similarly started sort of like a little similar process because like this is my comedy notebook i've been using for a while i've uh-huh. heard of the Underground railroad because she's black and been through everything <laughs> and like there's like legal pads and paper clips and post-it notes and all this stuff. And like I really I like to keep it longhand because I feel like I remember better and I feel like I'm able to keep a little bit more of a like if, when I'm getting up a lot, I feel like I'm able to keep like a better relationship with it. But right. and I'll show you guys this because it's really cheap. I bought this little, like, 11-inch laptop for, like, $200 uh-huh. from Amazon, and I literally just keep Google Docs in there because I feel like I can keep better records as far as word count and how much material and all that stuff yeah. on just a totally separate device.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a very good idea. Because, because uh, it's,
0: like, how many fucking... Empty extra cell phones? Do you have in your house? How yeah. many just stupid, just like barely dead laptops you just keep around so you don't want to throw away? Yeah, spend two hundred bucks on something you're going to use.
2: Yeah, no doubt. I it's funny because I almost lost my original notebook one time, and that freaked me out so bad because I can't remember anything. And no, no and terrible
0: memory. I have because I just moved. I have every notebook every joke i've ever written since i was like 17 years old on paper
2: in the uh-huh. box. <laughs> now uh, you got me right at the beginning you mentioned uh three comics that are actually maybe before your parents time uh yes <laughs> so you got don rickles moms mabley and uh joan rivers i oh, mean okay. they. i mean those are names that i know how did you get exposed to them
0: I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time and have a really close relationship with my grandmother who was born in
2: 1939. There
0: you Um, go. Yeah. So I really like my instincts for everything. I am a little uptight and a little old school and a little kind of like that because I was really raised by a very proper 104 year old woman
1: uh-huh
0: <laughs> and so um like i really like a lot of 60s and 70s television and comedy i think david brenner is one of the funniest most forgotten about people oh yeah that won emmy awards and filled theaters and everyone's like david how
2: huh? uh-huh yeah
0: and it's like if you don't know your 70s comedy you're missing a lot of like references for i think what makes today's style what it is i right. have more modern people that i like but like my really foundational people like my joke tell my friends is if you started comedy after the year 1990 don't talk to me mm-hmm. like that's like I, yeah. I'm, old school. I'm old yeah
2: school. that's great and when i i watched a couple of your clips and the longer one that's on your website you it's funny because you reminded me a little bit of a Don Rickles Joan Rivers type thing because you. You, you're talking to the audience, bringing them in with you, and you you made it natural. It wasn't it wasn't like forced or anything like that. So I I respect people that can do that because that's difficult.
0: It's work. It's it's work, but it's it's the only way I know how to do comedy. Unfortunately,
2: yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you
0: got to do. This. <laughs> I did it my way, just like
2: right. I
1: first
2: <laughs> <laughs> so. You're, I you know I know from uh being friends on Facebook that you came from a small town, uh Springfield, which is yeah, it's not as small as my town that, that I was from, but it's pretty small
0: because I lived in two small towns that are like eight hundred and eleven hundred people next to it. Okay, no one would recognize them, and it would yeah. like tell people where my parents lived. Right. So I just say the big the town that's twenty miles away.
2: Uh huh. <laughs> So I grew up yeah. in Lakeville, which is about 20 miles away from South Bend, and I always say South Bend because it's the same. Yeah,
0: because <laughs> it's like if I tell you which small town of 800 people, it will take you 30 seconds to find my mom at her job. Yeah. So we're just <laughs> not doing
2: that. Oh, that's great. So between 16 and 18, you're writing all this stuff. So what is the impetus of you writing all this? Did you see at 16 that you wanted – this was going to be your path, you were going to be a comic, or were you just writing it down to test it out, or what, you know, what was going on in your head at that time? Well,
0: there were two kind of pushes. So, the push that was, like, a little bit more, like, longer path was that, um, actually, from the ages of 11 to 18, I trained to be an opera center. Okay. Uh, for seven years, I was in lessons like four to six days a week, singing oh, wow. in three different choirs, singing at universities. The the music competitions I won the summer before I moved to Chicago paid for me to move to Chicago.
2: Uh-huh. wow! Like
0: that, I, I I I am a pretty good comedian, but I was still a better musician. Yeah, and so I had been doing classical music for years and years and years. I sang in nine languages, learned how to speak four of them. And I had just sort of been learning all these great, like amazing classical music and all this beautiful, beautiful language it's all set to, but I wanted to have my own words out there Uh because my teachers in school were always telling me, Matt, you're a great writer, Matt, you're a great writer, Matt, you need to invest more in this, Matt, you need to pay more attention to this. Mm. So it was always like I had something to say, but it was like, where, how, why, what's the place for it? And so that was just sort of in the back of my mind for ever. And mm. then it, around the time I was 16. Yeah, it was 16. It was like right when that junior year started. Uh, I don't know how or why don't know how or why. Cause it was before she died. It was the summer before she died. Joan Rivers, for some reason popped up in my YouTube recommendeds. and it was not her fashion police stuff. That was on when I was in high school. Right. It was her hosting the tonight show in like 1981.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I remember. And so that.
0: I saw this loud Jewish woman with this big blonde hair, big blonde hair, wearing a ton of makeup and fake jewelry and obnoxious clothes. And I said, That's who I am. uh uh-huh. I just said she's screaming, she looks like a freak. <laughs> she does not care, and everyone's down for the ride. That's who I am. Yeah. And so then I just sort of obsessively started watching everything I could find and reading every book I could get my hands on uh-huh. that's just I'm a nerd. Uh and I really just said, okay, when I first Googled her, it said writer, comedian, actress. So I said, okay, I guess I'm a writer and a comedian. I guess that's what I want to do then. Uh I guess that's this other path. And then I just sort of pursued that very Midwestern and naively.
2: Yeah, no (laughs) doubt. So do you feel like – do you still sing, by the way?
0: I do sing in my shows, Um, not not fucking Massenet. There's no Mozart. There's no conductor. We're not (laughs) – you're, you don't come see me at a comedy club and then I pull back the curtain and there's the 40 piece choir choir uh. like, church ropes. Um, that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, I do sing in my act and I think once the economy's recovered from Corona and like touring looks normal again, like three to five years from now, yeah, like cause that's how long I really think it's going to take for the industry to like, behave again yeah i I would love to go out on the road and do like the small clubs that i do with with a pianist Uh and maybe maybe like a bass or a guitar player that'd be fun that'd be a lot of fun
2: yeah that's cool because i mean you put so much effort into that and then you kind of did a left turn and went down the comedy route. I know it's a lot of transferable it,
0: skills though. Yeah, it's a yeah. a lot of transferable skills.
2: Yeah, and that's that's what that's what I was going to mention because you with the the singing first of all you're getting more comfortable in being in front of people, in front of an audience and and, and things like that, but also the singing of uh, comedy is very good comics have a rhythm and a, almost a a song to the way they do their delivery. Um, Even the ones, even deadpan ones like Stephen Wright, you know, they, yeah, there's a, there's a real rhythm there. And I, I know that studying music would definitely help you there.
0: And it especially helps in when, for me, this is where I really see it when I'm trying to figure out the best way to do a joke or why something isn't working or why the beginning isn't, but the ending isn't mm. or whatever, when I'm trying to fix a joke, that's when I really feel like all my musical training comes in. Cause it's like, I'm pretty confident the words are fine. How I'm doing it is the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's where you feel those things where, okay, maybe if I do this quietly, this will work better. Or maybe if I decide to go a little less angry and a little bit uh, more in a different emotional direction, Mm -hmm. it'll work better. Or what if I save the loud for the end? Or what if I do the punchline quietly or I slow down for the punch instead of step Uh into it? Those are all the things where it's like, how am I driving the car? Cause there's nothing wrong with the car. How am I driving?
2: It? Right. And that's funny. That's what all the old school people talk about is, is the way it's not so much what you say most of the time, it's how you say it. And when you deliver a punchline properly, you get 10 times the response you do as if you do it improperly. Oh and yeah. Just,
0: and then also how many times have you been watching, especially this is with an experienced headliner, where they're sort of 20 minutes into their 45, they're like halfway through their hour, Mm. and they get into that rhythm, like you say, and they might say something that's not even funny, but you laugh because it feels right and it sounds right. Yeah. Once they sort of get you into the rhythm of how they talk and how they see things and what they're doing, it's Uh almost like a call and response and less like a vet amused
2: me. Yeah, yeah, yep. Exactly. I want to make sure uh we uh give Katie Michnell a shout out there. You you um, sang at her wedding.
0: Oh, that's my sister.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, she, I
0: sang the what did I sing at her wedding? I sang Schubert's Ave Marie at her wedding.
2: Oh yeah, that's a good one.
0: Or maybe it was the Bach one, I don't know. She got married a long time ago. She's she's my older sister. We're gonna okay. put it that way. She's my older uh-huh. sister. And that might have been like shit like seven or eight years ago. It was a long time ago.
2: Oh yeah. Like, now, how old are you now? I can't tell ages.
0: If you had to guess, cuz I've lived about three lives, if you had to guess, how old would you say?
2: I'd put you I'd put you at about 24. Okay. I
0: am 22.
2: Oh, wow. I'm 22.
0: Okay. And most people, it's funny because January of this year, when the year started, I was the host of Comedy Bar. They select a host for a whole month, and I did from New Year's Eve to the end of January. And I had my birthday in January, and I mentioned something, oh, yeah, no, it's nice to be here because I just had my birthday on Thursday. And mm. then he was like, oh, how old did you turn? And I said, 22. <laughs> Four people spit out their drinks. I felt like I was in a cartoon. Like, I thought you were 28. You've been doing this for ten years. Look, you're twenty two. You're twenty two. I thought you were older than me. Literally everybody, because it was after the show, everyone had left. It was just staff and management. Like I thought you were older than me. What the fuck? I was scared of you. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, you you do carry yourself well. Uh, you know, I you know, I've got two kids one's 30 and one is 26 mm-hmm. and i'm you know i'm thinking back to both my kids also carried themselves pretty well but when my son was 22 you know he was he, he was still pretty out there so you know yeah. Um, but yeah it's it's age is so hard when you get my age because i turn 56 next week so when you get my age everybody looks 12 they either oh, look 12 oh, or about my oh, age so. <laughs>
0: And then there's also the thing of, and I'm sure like your kids are probably like this, like after a while, they like stop counting. So they're like, you've probably been 50 to them for about eight
2: years. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, like it's not moving. I'm not updating it. It's fine. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think exactly. it's probably more than eight, but yeah, I, I dig that. So the music takes you to Chicago, big city, Chicago. So yeah. from the time you got to Chicago, how long did it take you to get on stage to actually do stand up?
0: Oh, a week. I was in it to win it. Yeah. I, had, I had places to go, people to see stuff to find out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was really funny. I, the first place I ever got up actually ended up being my home club. The first place I ever got up at is the comedy bar, which I mentioned earlier. Their uh-huh. uh, main location is uh, right in, like, right in downtown Chicago and River North, which is, you know, we get so many tourists, which mm-hmm. is why it's the best club to work at. Because if you're funny to tourists who have been drinking all day, you're funny anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Yeah. <laughs> if you can wrestle those people on Saturday at eleven, you're fine. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> They're from Tulsa and they've been drinking since two p.m. Uh-huh. Maybe with lunch, maybe not. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So they were. that's really where I learned how to do stand-up, because the first month or two, I only went a couple places, because I was 18, didn't believe in a fake ID, and so I was only going to places that serve food. Mm -hmm. Oh, my friend Javi from high school commented, Hi, Javi, I miss you too. Whenever I can travel again, I'm coming back to Springfield, and I'm going to get an IV for the tequila. (laughs) I'm just... My mom's a nurse. I don't to call. We're just... I'm getting an IV for the tequila. (laughs) Um... Yeah. But that was like really where I got up a lot. And I would only go to places that had food because I was afraid to get carded. Uh-huh. And then I realized that if you walked in with five guys that everybody recognized in the middle of a conversation with them, mm-hmm. no one's going to card you. And then what I learned after about a year is that if you're wearing orange lipstick and have a light beard, no one's going to card you because the bouncer's scared. <laughs> the bouncer's like, you either belong here or you're going to bite my ear off like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's one of those anything could happen. Do you have, like, a dove in your wallet that you're going to bite the head off like Ozzy Osbourne? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you look a little unhinged.
1: Yeah. Just look
0: vaguely unhinged <laughs> until you hear me talk. I'm harmless yeah but um otherwise yeah so i sort of had to maneuver all sorts of ways to be able to get out and go around and get up as much as i wanted to i would get booked for shows and i remember one time they would have, like they had to talk to the owner of the venue into letting me come for months because i was like only 19 and then when they finally got me in there i could only do my set i was like walked in and walked out like an escort i felt uh-huh. like it expensive <laughs> <laughs> I felt way more expensive than like the twenty bucks and the drink tickets that I yeah go because I was nineteen
2: yeah no doubt. <laughs> so you must have made an impression fairly early if they if they're asking for you when you're just nineteen.
0: Yeah, well, I started in August of 2016, and then I was producing at Laugh Factory before I turned nineteen in January. Wow. I just I started with a couple really ambitious, really smart people mm-hmm. and when people believe in you and they think you're different and they see that you like to work hard, they want to give you a chance. Mm-hmm. Cuz I always have felt like a little more recently I feel a little bit more settled, so to speak, and sort of how I feel about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But for the longest time it was always I need to be work, I need to be working to be worthy of the shit that people are asking me to do. Mm-hmm. 'Cause you're I felt like I was always getting shit it was a little bit ahead. And it was always like, Okay, we really need to be worth this so that way we get to do it again in this year.
2: Yeah. Cause you don't want to fuck up so bad that you have to take a step backward. Right. That's never fun. And we've all
0: had our big bombs and big places mm-hmm. and stuff. Kind of avoid people. Yeah. (laughs) And you just really try. I always, my thing was that I always just wanted to try to be worth what people were asking me to do. Cause I really, I was getting asked to do a lot very early on. Like Mm. me, I was actually producing comedy showcases before I'd ever seen one. Yeah. And I didn't really even know what they were because I knew what open mics were because of the internet. And I knew what stand up was at clubs and theaters because of specials. But Mm -hmm. the whole concept of anything happening in the middle, I was too Midwestern and grew up on a farm. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. My sister went to high school in a convent. What are you talking about? Right. I'm too Midwestern. Yeah. I I knew nothing. I was very ignorant, like, fine with it.
2: I, I see, I see in your personality and tell me if I'm wrong. I see in your personality that you're kind of like me, that when somebody asks you to do something and they're expecting B, you always go to a plus, you always want to blow them away. Totally.
0: Totally. I always want to do the extra step and it's not even, I feel like I have something to prove not to them, but to me. Yeah. Because- I'm the one who always sets the challenge because they're asking me because they think I can. They're not asking me because they think I'm going to fail. They don't want right. to show a suck. They clearly, by stretching out and saying, hey, I know you've only been doing this for a year and a half, but can you do 30? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you do the work and you try and learn how to stretch things out and make things like a little bit more enjoy your pauses and really try to enjoy your time up there before you yeah. have the full time to be up there.
2: Right. Right. And that, you know, it's, it's funny. Everybody I talk to that has achieved any amount of success has been thrown into situations that they weren't ready for, but they said, okay, I'll just do it. Um, Can I
0: tell you the prime? I wasn't ready, but I figured it out story, which I think will be just inspirational. For any uh-huh. of- okay. Okay. So I had a friend who moved to Chicago from Indiana. He'd been here a couple months. He said, Matt, I have my first show. It'd mean the world for me to, for you to come. And I was like, sure, whatever. I was not booked that night. It was like a Thursday or something. All I wanted to do was drink four beers and not stand up. Uh-huh. That's, really, that's all <laughs> I had planned for that evening. And just be nice for my friend and be there for my friend.
2: Right. who was so new to the city.
0: Well, I knew the producers, but I didn't, I'm never that person. When I go to hang out at a bar, when I go to hang out at a show, I don't ask to get up. I'm Uh not that person. I knew the producers. I said, (laughs) hi, I hugged people. I yeah. bought people two dollar beers. I didn't ask to get up. I'm not that guy. So I'm sitting in the audience enjoying the show. It's fun people. It's people I hadn't met before. It's I love when I meet new comics and I've never seen them before and they're great. Like mm. I love all those fun surprises. Right. Well, there is someone who's from Chicago who writes for Saturday Night Live named Chris Red,
2: who okay. was supposed
0: to headline the show. And he was running late because when you come in from out of town and you have a fucking Emmy you do like seven (laughs) shows in a night yeah you're kind of all over the place and so the producers were texting him and he was just like i'm really held up at this other spot i really i'm sorry i'm gonna be this amount late i'm gonna i'm I'm really sorry i'm doing my best to hit everything i said i could do Mm. and because i'd hate to cancel on you and so the producers literally his name brad rickert tapped me on the shoulder and he said matt Chris is late. We don't know how late he's going to be. Can you just get up until whenever? <laughs> <laughs> he literally said, I don't know so if five minutes or 45. I uh, have no idea when he's getting here. Can you get on stage until whenever? Uh, <laughs> and I did 28 minutes of stand-up with no preparation.
2: Wow.
1: None.
0: I didn't have a notebook. I literally. I thought I was going out to watch my friend and buy some people I had not seen in a while some beers. I literally... went out there with like 40 bucks and my ID.
1: And
0: Uh I I literally, I did 27 minutes with no warning. Chris came in, saw my closer, and then as uh, they were introing up, he was like, thanks for helping out, man. You're really good. I like that. And then...
2: Uh (laughs) Wow. And...
0: I just had to be there. I just had to be there. Yeah. If you're a dick and you don't support your friends, you don't get to open for people with Emmys. Yeah. That's... That's more of an example of what can
2: to. That that that's a good thing to remember. Now, uh that set, you know, you're doing 27 28 minutes did you do stuff off the cuff? Did you do stuff that you remember? Did you work the audience? You know, how does that go?
0: It always makes everything. I cannot do the same set twice. I can't do, I like literally, I typically know where I want to start and I like always have my one or two openers that I'm using at the moment in the back of
1: my head. Mm-hmm.
0: But I sort of take, Whatever jokes I've been doing, what I've been trying to fix, where I'm at emotionally, how, I'm, how the audience is receiving me, what wow. they look like to me as far as what they've laughed at before, if they're older, the um, ethnic references I can make in regards to myself or not, all those things, like, I'm constantly making all those choices in the minute. Because when you're lucky enough to have a lot of material, it's never, a, oh, fuck, I hope this joke works. It's, mm-hmm. okay, I hope I make the next right decision. Because right. I know I will have something that will make them happy. I just got to find it. And right. so when you really aren't planning at all, your first five minutes are a little more, and especially when you're drunk, your first five minutes <laughs> are a little bit more, oh, okay, this is who's here. Okay, this is how they're picking me up. Uh-huh. And then you're able to go into what you're doing. but, but I'm always doing a mix of stuff I've written um, an improvised tag on what I've written, improvisation with the audience, and then written material because I always have an opener and closers that I'm working with but mm-hmm. I left the middle be play time mm-hmm. because I'm not, I, the reason I never do jokes the exact same way or story the exact same way with the exact same words every single time is because I sang like, you know, Hugo von Hochman librettos. And like, I learned plays by fucking Edward Albee. And guess what? I'm not fucking Shakespeare. Yeah. I'm not so special. All this shit has to be set in stone and that it's so perfect. It can't move.
2: Right. Right.
0: I, I, I don't have a Pulitzer. Yeah. Like I don't, I have a Tony award. Like there's, So I like to have good ideas and be a good personality and be open and be receptive and have material that can reach. But that doesn't mean it's got all commas in the same place. Right. And even that I do all parts of a bit sometimes.
2: Right. And for live stand-up, you know, it's rare to see really good spontaneity. And spontaneity really, you know, that's... It, a crowd knows when it's happening. You know, you know, the people obviously who can work the crowd well, or people who start a set and say, "Wow, that's not working. Let's go this direction," and they can, you know, they can turn on a dime and and make that happen. That, you know, that's that's really magical. I know that's something I can't do. So, you know, I like to see that in people and it and audience appreciate.
0: It's really fun for the audience because, like you you said, they can definitely tell when it's a... Like an authentic, not gonna happen again moment. Yeah. Like, I remember one time, this is just an example of one of those moments that could never happen again. I was, she was sitting up front. There was a woman sitting up front and she was sitting by herself. And she clearly wasn't upset that she was sitting by herself because she was like dressed great and like the hair was done and like she got the food she wanted. Like, she clearly was taking herself out on a date and uh-huh. she was great about it. She had the loudest, best laugh I've ever heard in my entire life. She sounded like <laughs> Michael Jackson's chimp. Like she had the most ah, yeah! <laughs> laugh I have ever heard out of like a thirty-year-old white woman in my life. Uh-huh. And every and like that's also my target demo of women between twenty-five and forty-five. That's loves mm. me more than anybody. Straight guys really like me. Teenagers love me, mm. but those like young to middle-aged women are always down for me. And so I just felt like every 45 seconds, I was just making references to like throwing her a banana peel from being at the goddamn zoo. Cause mm. like, again, just these wild animal noises every 45 seconds, uh-huh. just this playtime of that's not going <laughs> to happen again. It's not going to happen. Again.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, that, that type of stuff, that magical type of stuff, you know, yeah. audience just eat that stuff up. And, you know, I've seen it and it's, it's, it's the best thing ever. You know, it, it's funny. I'm a real, I'm a fan of Nate Bargetsy and we went to see him in Indy towards the latter part of last year. And on the mm-hmm. same tour, he came to South Bend and I said, well, you know, it's the same tour. Let's go see it. Funny thing is, is he did the exact same stuff and, yeah. and I love him. I mean, he he's, he's funny as hell, but. He did the exact same stuff. And that's and, the way a lot of
0: people have to work. Yeah. Some people feel like they can't remember it if it's not in an order. Yeah. I've heard that from some people. It's like, if I don't do this, this, then this, I feel like the first 10 minutes are all fucked up.
2: Yeah.
0: That's how some people work like that. And then also, what I've understood from going online and reading contracts and being nosy <laughs> is that a lot of times when you're working on a special, they like, sort of demand that it's written all ahead of time and out and seen and practiced in a certain way over a certain period of time.
2: Wow. So yeah. like
0: because they like they want to see every joke before they put it on their damn network.
2: Yeah. Like yeah. when
0: you're one to sites, I feel like you and your production company have a tad more liberty, but like <laughs> you, you're not necessarily working with censors, but it's just like do you have to say that? Do you, do you have to? Yeah.
2: Do you have to. Say that? <laughs> You know the funny thing about his his two sets was in Indy, I could tell he wanted to be there, and South Bend, I t- I could tell he didn't want to be there. Um,
0: Why do people think that small towns are beneath them? It's always the best audience. Yeah, it's yeah. always the best audience. Oh yeah,
2: and he had more people in South Bend than he had in Indy too. It was but a smaller venue. for
0: entertainment because you might get might not get another comedian on that level or like another concert for maybe yep. six weeks.
2: So this yep. is the
0: fun thing to do for a
3: while.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, everybody loved it, but I just, I had something to compare it to, which was the exact same yes. thing when he did it better. So, yeah. <laughs> and then it's kind of, it, it's, it was disappointing, but it's kind of neat to see that. Cause you know, that, you know, we're people too. And yeah. guess what? You we have shitty days <laughs> and I could just tell he was having one.
0: <laughs> I, I really, I really enjoy seeing because it's so funny to me because people always think, oh, I would never feel comfortable getting on stage and being improvisational and not having everything planned because there's like, I feel like I'm not very stable for the audience.
1: Mm-hmm. And you
0: are stuck in an act and not stuck as in like you've committed yourself to it and you're doing these jokes for two years that are evergreen or whatever. Yeah it all becomes about your emotional state because that's the only thing that's changing. Yeah. Yep. I'm like able to pick up on what they're doing and like, we're able to make decisions together. But if you show up in a bad mood with the script, you turn on (laughs) autopilot and you stay there till they give you a check. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. I sort of feel like we all end up having to be a part of the flow and trying to resist it actually creates a bigger issue.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that you are in the moment every time you go up makes it so that you're never going to have one of those experiences. You know, you you may have a shitty day, but once Mm -hmm. you get up there, you're, you're trying to do something different and you're, you're trying to turn that shitty day into something better. And that type of spontaneity, like I said, just works.
0: Totally. Because like my act use is always about like, my relationship, my family, like stuff that's happening to me directly or stuff I'm experiencing directly. Or back when I was producing shows uh, in Chicago at the Playground Theater and at the Laugh Factory, mm-hmm. they their 10-minute walk from each other, yeah. and I lived in the neighborhood. So I was really able to talk about my neighborhood, and everyone would have seen the poster on their way there. Everyone would have gotten the reference because, mm-hmm. you know been around so it's all these things that are so specific that well when it's your life how why wouldn't you be free with it
2: right right yeah
0: when it's something that happened to you last week why why wouldn't you be a little bit you know not about it like there's Uh no reason to be about it because you weren't there (laughs) (laughs) you know
2: yeah, that's great. Um, it's
0: sort of like, it's why I feel like comedians are never nervous when they get married, because everyone's always afraid and has cold feet the night before they get married. because It's like, oh, my God, I have to, like, live the biggest moment of my life tomorrow.
2: Uh-huh.
0: We live through all the big moments of our life every time we get on stage because, you know, your relationship with your sister or your mom dying or that time you went to rehabs what's in your act.
2: Mm-hmm, right. Yeah, that makes sense. On this part of the podcast, you may notice a little bit of disconnect, and this is because Matt and I recorded an entire podcast, and about 37 minutes of it was actually listenable, and the rest of it was trash. So we are starting all over again. Hi, Matt. How you doing?
3: Hi, Scott. I'm doing all right. How are you doing this
1: afternoon?
2: All right. All right. I I got my walk in, and I cleaned the garage a little bit, and did real work, so I'm doing okay. What What did you do today?
3: Oh, nothing. I've just been busy working from home, which has like been lucky to do it, so I can't complain too much, but it sure does keep you busy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so you talked about, on Facebook, you talked about doing a uh, 20-minute clean set. Can you tell me about that?
3: Yeah, so basically I got asked to do a um, corporate gig which, for those who are like not super conversant in comedy, is when you get asked to work specifically for a corporation, not for like a club or a bar, a bar, And it was a Pride gig, so pretty because it was the month of June. So pretty much everyone that was on the lineup was gay or lesbian or trans or somewhere mm. on uh, that uh, range. And yeah, it was really, really fun. There were two different shows. They're across two different time zones because of the international company with people in India as well as the United States. So they wanted to catch all their time zones. And over 700 people watched live between the two shows just of the place. Wow. I did two different 10-minute sets. I could have done the same material on both, but I just... Not to test the water every time you give me an opportunity. Yeah. So I could, couldn't could just let it let my dead dog fly, and I had to see exactly what I could do. And I did like a solid like 18 to 20 clean. It was really, really shocking. Because I like to talk about all the body parts where they go. Yeah. So <laughs> this was fun. This was really interesting and fun.
2: So what you did for those, those two 10-minute sets, did you come up with brand new stuff? Did you take some of the stuff that you've done and cleaned it up? How, how do you make that happen?
3: The way that I made that happen was basically my opener that I did in because, you know, with our live shows, you really do have to re-examine it. I took every word that and then most of the cursing out and then most of the overtly sexual references out. I also have a new, longer piece that I've been doing that's about non-purpose, because I feel like people's families are some of the most relatable experiences that anybody has. And so to be able to talk about that in a non-controversial way was something that I wanted to do on purpose that I've been working on over the past couple months. And mm-hmm. I think really easy to do inoffensively, character for the last one of that, set. and I have this new character that I've been doing that, in my mind, she's my neighbor, uh. and it's just this old Jewish woman in the head. You <laughs> uh, can really, it's wonderful that you can have the freedom of not being this, you're not going to curse on accident.
2: So, so you took... Uh... The character thing, can can you tell me a little bit about that, how you came up with, with your Jewish neighbor?
3: Well, the way I sort of came up with her was that when I moved into this neighborhood, I realized that that was the only ethnicity we don't have. That's honestly where my mind first came from. <laughs> on this block, it's literally white, black, Latino, and Asian, like literally like one next to one, one next to one, one next to one.
1: Uh-huh. And I was
3: like, we don't have any spicy white like, people. Like there's no Italians, there's no Jews, there's no Polish, like there's no spicy white people Uh already. I already noticed that. And then I, before my current relationship, I dated a lot of Jewish guys. I have a lot of Jewish friends. So like sort of, I have this familiarity with like, I just know so many different people's families and I've been able to see so many consistencies. It almost feels like I'm making fun of my family and like my friends and like my own sort of experiences and it's so harmless and it's so fun because, like, my version of the character is that she's super educated. She's a retired professor and her husband's cremated and she keeps him in a Fabergé egg. Like, I love her. She's insane and I love it. The Fabergé egg costs more than the house when they bought it to age. I love her.
2: That's great. So, is characters, I, I've watched some of your stuff, is characters something that you bring to the stage when you're not doing like a Zoom type thing?
3: Characters are often something that I do specifically for online stuff because I feel like they're so harmless. Uh As far as in my live work, they're starting to appear, but it's been a newer development. I personally find doing characters to be really hard. And I find getting uh, other voices that are not my own to be really difficult. And I really enjoy the work, and I enjoy the challenge, and I enjoy trying to make the posture different, and trying to make everything really clear. But it takes me years to figure out a voice. Mm-hmm. It takes me years to figure out a voice. Like, I do not have a lot of different characters available uh, to me that I that aren't new, and they tend to be based out of people in my life, like guys that I've dated, moms, or uh, coworkers uh, that I've had, or people like that that I have a slight distance from, but a direct connection to. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to try because, like for example, I cannot see my sister's voice because she and I have the same accent. She's just a little higher than me. Mm-hmm. So when I do my sister on stage, I do our grandma because it's a woman's voice. It's something that's very close, but it's not so close
2: to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, the, the whole character thing, because I was in a spot where, you know, I've done a few of these uh, Zoom mics, and I felt like that I couldn't do my regular act because... There's there's body language and there's expressions and things that I do that just it, it wasn't going to translate to Zoom. So I actually came up with a a, a right wing conspiracist named Eugene from Smyrna, and I, I I put a red hat on that says apocalypse on it and wore sunglasses because I didn't want anybody to know who I was. And I had so much <laughs> fun doing that. And isn't it? I mean you just get into that character and I did I think I did it like three different times and the the last time he had been on a couple of the protests the one in Michigan and one in Pennsylvania when they were protesting the shutdowns and he caught covid so he was dying and so <laughs> so I killed him and I probably shouldn't have but you know he had he had two kids he had uh, baby kid rock and baby Miranda Lambert and they were always getting into his guns and shooting each other. So it was it was just it was a lot of fun to do. And Miranda
3: I, Lambert does look pretty feisty. Yeah. <laughs> I she got it
2: in. <laughs> yeah, I just you know, I had never the, the thought of doing a character had never come to me until I started doing this stuff. And I'm like, I'm looking at my act and I'm like, this just doesn't work. I can't, I can't do this.
3: From the kind of standup you try to do, it is like your life and your personality. So what makes the joke really funny might be a shrug or might be the way you turn your head or might be the way that you look at the guy in the front row. Right. Or I've even seen some people where they have this in their act to where like, if they aren't able to ask somebody in the front row, like a question or like, you're going to pretend like that didn't happen, but it happened. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if they can't have those moments, they don't get the maximum out of their set. So, and it's really weird because we got into this because we wanted to be who we were on stage. Like you're funny and you want to be funny in front of people. And so to kind of go and like, okay, but what if I tried to be like somebody else? Mm -hmm. What if I tried to be like other people? It's not what our brain uh, goes initially, but I really think in these new environments, it's a, it's a really good way to get yourself out there if you like can be creative about it.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that because I you know, obviously you're having fun with it, but everybody I talk to that's in the business and a professional at comedy says, you know, you know, a lot of the clubs are going to probably go away and mm-hmm. this online stuff is not going to go away. There's going to be some uh-huh. f- some form of online live online stuff that's going to stay with us and, you know, we're going to have to adjust th- to that to be able to keep up.
3: We are honestly the next step that I see happening is that there's gonna be a like a, a live streaming platform, sort of like the Zooms and like the WebExes and all of that, but that it is protected the same way Netflix and Blue are protected and that you cannot take a screenshot and you mm. cannot take a screen video. Right. I think if that happens, then we will have every occasion to do online specials and to do live sets. And for the idea of doing 15 minutes, 20 minutes straight online to not be terrifying, because you're not worried about someone screenshotting the worst possible <laughs> way for anyone to see your act and then saying, this is what she does. Don't book her. Or this is what he does. I told you it wasn't funny three years ago.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, I think the concept of this is, you know, it's taken like the Netflix specials like you talked about and Hulu specials and whatever and it's actually turning it up a notch because you're you're live, you may have the opportunity to talk to the audience or at least address them. Mm-hmm. So so it's like almost best of both worlds. You're you're not you're not traveling, you know, 3 hours to get to a a bar in Idaho and, and you're uh, still able to do something that is live and fresh. So I
3: totally, I mean, this isn't even, I don't even want to say that it's like a new and novel idea because around three or four years ago, HBO put out a special with uh, a comedian named Drew Michael and they did it in one room with no audience. Hmm. Like, that was the whole special idea of how to sell this whole hour comedian for, you know, okay, you've never seen him on TV before, but it's a really interesting concept, and this guy's really funny. He's going to do this to no one in a room.
2: That's almost like a one-man one, one man show type play um, that's televised.
3: Yeah, and it's almost, to me, it seemed like the most extreme version of, of that Sarah Silverman thing because it seemed like the more successful she get, the smaller rooms she would tape her specials in. Until eventually, it was like a fifty seater in like the back of a record store in LA. Yeah, like I just think it was sort of like the ultimate of that.
2: Yeah, that's 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 a re- that's a really cool idea. I'm gonna have to look back and see if I can find that special because I'd like to see yeah, that.
3: True, Michael. He's a uh, he started in Chicago
2: yeah that's really that's really cool i I watched your the video on your page where you're doing the makeup and, oh thank you yeah and you made a you made a comment on here on there that I wanted to pursue a little bit. You talk about playing these small towns and rural places podunks and all that kind of stuff and and you talk about people being proud that they were nice to you and yeah and I, so I, you said it and then you said, you know, I don't necessarily think they're the best people in the world, but if they'll hire me, I'll go, you know, paraphrasing, obviously, but you said something like that. Tell me how you feel when somebody is acting proud when they're being nice to you.
3: It's just sort of like when someone feels like they're like, they've made a personal development milestone (laughs) <laughs> and that, like, you were a part of it, it sort of makes you feel like a building block or a piece of Play-Doh or, like, Mr. Potato has.
1: Uh-huh. Like,
3: okay, I helped your kid recognize colors, and now they can finish Kindergarten. <laughs> like, it's like, wow, you realize that I am smart and funny and a nice guy the same way a white gay guy would be or the same way a straight mixed guy would be or the same way someone who looks like you look like would be. Yeah. If you did not have that in your mind that I have the potential to just be a nice normal person who's funny and get a their job and can say thank you and say, well, you're a freak and you don't need to tell me that you just feel so like saving <laughs> I don't even know. Like, I'm grateful that, like, these things have grown, but, like, I I, I don't want to know.
2: Right, right. Do you feel like that's a step in the right direction, though?
3: I feel like it is a step in the right direction for their mental processes, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: but it's still not, like, fully realized work. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, it's a step, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's near an end step at all. No. And it's also much better than, like, uh, the woman who at New Year's of 2000, and, ooh, 2018 or 2019, when I was hosting at some venue, just stuck her entire hand in my afro. Like, it, it, so that's, that's not, <laughs> it's like <until laughs> a tale of radiation, of root and weird things you can say or do to me after herself. Like, <laughs> That's not that bad. It does get worse. But I do think that it is sort of like, to me, it sort of feels like, imagine if you went on a date with a girl who was like 30 and she was like, you know, I never normally dealt with guys like you, but you're a really good time. We should go out again. (laughs) It feels disgusting. Yeah. You feel disgusting. Like, there's really nothing technically wrong with what she says, but you still feel disgusting.
2: Right. It, it's still treating you more as an object than a human being. You, you...
3: And also more like the fact that you would think that it's normal to say, I thought you were going to be a freak and you weren't like, that's something that you can just say to anybody. Mm-hmm. Or like I thought going to be a monster and or I thought you were going to like, I don't know, try to like touch my boyfriend's ass and didn't, I don't know what's on their mind. Mm-hmm. But like, just the fact that you think that that's like completely fine and normal to say, right. like I, it never ever crossed my mind when I go out to Iowa to say, like I really thought all you guys were going to beat my ass and tie me to a fence. You're actually nice. <laughs> this is so weird. I thought I was going to get free with a coke bottle. This is this is a <laughs> question.
2: You know. Like, you- you don't want
3: to ever lead with the fact that you thought something was going to go poorly, you thought someone was going to be ignorant, or you thought they'd be dangerous or bad or whatever. It's just like, that's to the point of manners where it's like, don't point out that people have big ears and breaking hair, it's not nice, walking. <laughs> it's walking. It's almost like I'm parenting somebody at that point.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I experience that on a very small scale because uh, young people they they see me and I mean I look like Mister Joe, conservative football coach or whatever, and they say, <laughs> you know, I I I didn't know you were cool. You know, I did I, I didn't think you'd be as cool as you are.
3: Which is fucked up because like, why wouldn't you be cool? You would like have like had you have more fun than they have had already. Like, <laughs> yeah. They don't why would you be cool?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's...
1: Because
3: you don't do comedy as like a post-divorce or post, like, you know, when most people get into their second career, you don't do it because you're lame and because you want to boss other people around and tell them what to do and how to act. Yeah. That's not... That's the young people. That's not so much the people who start at 45. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah, no doubt. You did... A... There's another short clip of you talking about Iowa on Facebook. Do you Oh kn- that's funny. That now that was totally that was totally off the cuff, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, that was totally improvised. That was the one where I was wearing the black shirt and my hair was in a on. Yeah. yeah. That was funny because I, I just I love talking to my audiences and especially at the club where that was filmed comedy bar, that gets a lot of tourists. Mm-hmm. And I am a Midwestern boy, and I'm a Southern boy. I'm from Illinois, Kentucky, and I've been able to travel a decent amount of the Midwest without doing comedy. So I love to know where people are from, and the reason I was so like moved by Iowa is because my sister and her husband do not live there anymore, but they lived there for like three years, and because her husband got a great job out there, he's like we're gonna go to the woods, take promotions, so and get to the city. <laughs> money my sister said you're smart so so they like kind of lived in this awful town of like seven thousand people in the middle of nowhere for a couple years and i just remember having to take the amtrak train out there and then having to get someone to pick me up and then drive another hour out and it's just like if it is this much work to hang out with my sister and her toddler i don't wonder why you guys do that i get it yeah i get it (laughs) So, like, I was not necessarily a place where dreams go to, like, you know, survive or, you know, come true. But it's a place, it's on the map, it's a state, they pay taxes, they're difficult.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny that a lot of comics tend to come from those small towns, though. Uh, Because you came from Springfield, and Mm -hmm. so many of them I hear... Uh, on podcasts and stuff. You know, they, they all come from really small towns, and they're the comics that are really most out there. I wish I could come up with some names, but...
3: Johnny Carson was from Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, he
2: was from Nebraska, um, yeah.
3: Andy Richter, you know, Conan's second guy. My mm-hmm. grandma was actually best friends with his aunt. But oh. He's from the middle of nowhere, Illinois, too. Uh-huh. Most funny people, I think, are from nowhere. Because I think if you either grow up as an only child or you grow up without a lot of stimulus and options for entertainment, you become very good at entertaining yourself. You become very good at creating stories in your head. And also you become very good at paying attention to books and movies and television shows and documentaries and sort of picking up information. Mm -hmm. You become very astute at just sort of picking up information because you're alone so much. And so much of being a good comedian is I think half of it is being confident and then the other half of it is being smart because if you're really confident and you're really smart, you will figure out how to make other people think that sounds funny.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the third part is having a extreme desire to get the hell out of that town. Totally. Because
3: all, everyone I went to high school with it's funnier than me that they wanted to stay there so I'm telling jokes and they you know work 80 hours yeah. a week like they're happy they're happy
2: yeah that's it, it seems like everybody every, you know like Dave Letterman he he came from a small town I think, I think was he from Muncie or did he just go to Ball State maybe he was from India <laughs> yeah but anyway he you know he's kind of a country guy and you know he started in LA he started doing stuff at the comedy store and and, and that is you know a guy that just wants to get the hell out of Dodge so you know, that's it's it's I think that's a common you factor
3: be almost born with that desire to grow because when you're involved in a self-employed career even if you get to be the host of the Tonight Show or even if you get to be like a theater comic You're still always growing. You're still always trying to make things better, make things different, reanalyze everything, make things more efficient, make things clearer to the audience. Mm -hmm. You're never done growing. So I think that desire to, I have to leave, I have to change, I have to look at this again. Am I making the right decision? Am I making the best decision?
1: Mm
3: -hmm. Like the personality type to go out and leave and be strategic about It's the type of person that I think to have the personality
2: for the career. Right. One of the things. Because if you're
3: not adventurous and curious, you're fucked.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because you are of, you know, you're 22 and you are probably on the pulse of what, you know, people think as far as comedy and stuff like that. There's a lot of blowback on this cancel culture stuff. The, you know, somebody did something, you know, five or 10 years ago, do we need to take, do we need to take that out and tell everybody or, you know, like Kevin Hart, you know, the, the stuff that he said and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that do you think that we've taken cancel culture too far or we haven't gone far enough?
3: I think most people my age would say that we haven't gone far enough. And my analysis is that the only place I feel like we've gone too far is I feel like people do not feel as though they still need to read everything anymore. Mm -hmm. That's what bothers me. I really feel like people feel like if they read a headline and they have access to one article that that is all the information that they need to make up their mind about something. Mm -hmm. And I don't think in any aspect of life, giving it 60 seconds of effort has ever been sufficient for anything. Right. So that's the only thing that I, that I feel like bothers me is I just feel like people, I don't even want to say rushed at judgment just rush period. Mm-hmm. Like, I just feel like there's a general, just everyone's in a hurry to um, find out everything about everybody and then figure out what it means and then who it impacts and then who all their friends are and where they work and then how they can tell it.
2: Right. The, you know, I, I just think about myself and I think about the things I said, like when I was a kid and you know, I said, you know, racist things. I was in an all white town. Mm-hmm. I let racist things go be said and i think you have to allow and you know i'm just glad it wasn't recorded but you, know, <laughs> you, you do have to allow for the growth in people too
3: totally totally i mean we all i think we are all entitled to change but we all kind of owe each other a hey, hey this is what i've meant or yeah you know what that was fucked up Yeah. I think we all owe each other the opportunity to grow, but we also do all kind of owe each other an explanation if somebody thinks that we you know, did something that either just flat out doesn't make any sense. Because sometimes what I think when people are trying to rush to say that they're offended or they're hurt by something, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a phrase that they're really looking for is, I don't really understand all the information that's being thrown at me or like Because I really feel like sometimes we don't even have a grip of what we're looking at before we want to call it a name.
2: Right, right. And then you get cases like, Louis C.K. Somebody somebody posted something about when are we gonna give Louis C.K. a break? And I actually it was one of the Louis
3: C.K. got his break. He's selling tickets all over the country. I don't understand what the problem is. He's he's
1: okay.
2: (laughs) Well, you know,
3: fine. Like, is he selling out the Beacon Theater anymore? No. But is he making a living doing a comedy and bringing in income? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not going to get on board with him until every woman in the world says he's okay. Because it's, I
3: just don't, I never felt like I would, and this is a, its own issue. In finding all that shit out about him, I didn't feel like I was losing my job. I thought the man was good. I thought the man worked hard. I thought he was very interesting, and it put out a lot of different kinds of material, like movies and uh, different things he'd written.
1: Mm-hmm. But I didn't
3: feel like I was losing George Carl. I yeah.
1: didn't feel yeah. like I was
3: losing a lot I, I I did not look at him as the beacon of like 20, 21st century conflict the way a lot of my peers do. Yeah. I think a lot of people were more injured by the finding out about his misbehavior and then having to pay any penalty
2: for it. Mm. Yeah, I feel like if, if I'm looking at somebody from his generation that came up at the same time, I I, I would lean more towards Lewis Black than Louis C.K. as a oh, totally. as a writer.
3: Oh, totally.
2: And my boyfriend would
3: agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, he's... Like, a lot of people. A lot of people would agree with you. Yeah.
2: He's he's one of my favorites. One of the things I like to ask everybody that comes on the show, and I probably asked you in, in the uh, shitty audio we had before, but let's, <laughs> let's do it again. What three things do you know now that you wish you would have known when you first started doing stand-up?
3: Oh, I don't think you asked me this. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> What things do I know now that I'd wish I'd known in the beginning? The first thing is that there's more money than you think so negotiate harder and stick around longer. Okay. That would be the first thing. That would be the first thing. The second thing that I would say to myself at this point in is and I did it, but follow your instincts, your instincts aren't wrong. Like you were smart before, you'll be smart after, your mind's got you on a good place, follow it. Mm
1: -hmm. So
3: yeah. Negotiate for more money and um, follow your instincts. And then the third thing that I think I would have told myself would have been to, I wish I had found my friends in comedy community, quote unquote, a little bit sooner than I did. Mm-hmm. I ended up finding a really funny, really good people I love to hang out with and I love to write with, but it took me longer than I wish it had. So I wish I had found my comedy friends a little sooner. Those are my three
2: things. Do you feel like the comedy friends thing is something the because you were a little bit standoffish or you just didn't know how to proceed?
3: I think I think it was a lot of factors. I think part of it was that the main real contributor to me not having a lot of close friends in comedy when I started was that I was underage. Mm. I was eighteen, nineteen, twenty for the first two and a half years. So I could get into the venue, but I couldn't get into the bar to go drink and hang out with everybody after. And that's where the business went down. Right. So I just, I didn't have access to that. And then the other reason is that I I, I look older than I am. And I people sort of think that I don't think I'm older than I am. I'm a little further along than I am. And that I have a little bit more status than I am. And they've always thought that. So, maybe I have really bitchy body language, or maybe I look like I was a king in a past life.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't know.
3: But, like, people are sometimes afraid to talk to me and stuff like that. And I think that might have part to do with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. I remember
3: one time at my home club, uh, they found out how old I was because my birthday was uh, during, like, was the day after I was working there. And they're like, You're 22? I was scared of you when you first came here. I thought you were older than me. <laughs> So, I, I don't know. I feel like it's a combination of not having access to what they saw. They probably thought I was a queen of England. Mm-hmm. It was even different.
2: Yeah, you, you you put off a very confident vibe, and sometimes that scares people. And... It especially
3: scares men who are older than me. That's what really freaks out. It freaks out straight guys who are older than me because they know how scared they were when they were 19, and they can't handle
1: yeah, <laughs> Someone yeah.
3: else
2: took another path. Yeah, no doubt. One thing I I really need to mention because I I watched your the makeup video on your site and then I watched the one that you did that was either yesterday or the day before. I mean, you yeah. you you do some fantastic stuff with makeup. I mean, the I mean, you you don't look like the same person when you're done. And you I mean, you you could be white, you could That's be black, you could be you could be Asian. I mean, you could do whatever you want.
3: That's the goal to be able to play with everything. Yeah. I really feel like, and I was actually talking about this on a podcast that's a little bit more serious, but I sort of feel like I don't really know exactly what I look like until I put all my features there because I, you know, my weight does fluctuate a little bit once I, my skin tone goes through about every color that exists in the year. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I have a beard. Sometimes I don't. I look like just about anything, and so once I put eyelashes where I want them, and I put the size I want them to be, and I decide where the eyebrows are, then I sort of feel like I look like a person. And so I enjoy being able to make that person look older or younger, or darker or lighter, or you know, fuller in the face, or more you know, thin and you know, tighter features. I enjoy being able to play with, with that.
2: Yeah, I, I'm just amazed how the shape of your face changes when you do that stuff with the shadowing and all that. I just...
3: I, I could kill somebody in Northern Louisiana right now if I had to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I could pull some ID channel right away in the middle of a nice kit and you wouldn't even know.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's... I. I that's, it just looks like an art to me and I... I and to, then
3: also when I flat out my hair, I literally look like Rikita Jones. I look like the next girl on Personal Creation. Oh, okay. I I can make anything happen.
2: Yeah <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Well, Matt, this has been great talking to you and thank you for doing the second sessions because of the audio of the first one. And I just I just want to tell everybody what how they can get to you. So Matt, if you could let everybody know how they can find you and anything that you're working on right now,
3: Oh, thank you so much. So my my uh, Instagram and my TikTok are at MattBrownComic. Uh, my Instagram is the most active of all my social media. And then if you want to check out my website where you can see a video of me performing as well as my resume and all that fun stuff, if you're trying to book me, my website's MattBrownComic.com. And if you want to come see live shows when the world opens back up, go to com slash count.
2: That's great.